So Ephesians 1, verses 1 and 2, hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There's an expression in English that I'm sure you've heard that familiarity breeds contempt. And that may be the case sometimes, although I think perhaps contempt is is maybe a bit too strong. Maybe more accurately it would be that familiarity breeds neglect. It's not that couples who have been married for a long time actually contemn each other, but the familiarity sometimes leads them to take each other for granted and they neglect each other and don't pursue each other in love as as they once did. Or those of us who live near the coast, it's not that we despise the beach, but we just don't tend to go very often. Why? Well, it's it's always there. We can always go whenever we want. And so we don't. Or when we think about the church, it's not that we we detest the 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 liturgy of the church and the things we do in our worship service, but they they become routine to us, and so perhaps we don't enter into them with as much enthusiasm as we once did. Familiarity can breed neglect. Now, when we come to these first two verses of Ephesians, and I read them, you can say, didn't we just hear this pretty recently? Like when we were in Philippians? Or maybe when we were in Colossians, or maybe when we were in First Thessalonians, it seems like I've heard something like this before. And when we're doing our Bible readings, we may get to this, these greetings, these opening greetings and say, yeah, 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 that's how, that's how Paul opens his letters. Let's get on and get to the good stuff. Um, and I, I, I think if we do that, we will miss a, a very carefully crafted greeting that Paul developed, and that's why he used it so many times. He used the identical one eight times in his letters, and then either expanded or contracted it in others of his letters. And these are not throwaway lines for Paul. He carefully crafted these verses to compact into very little space some deep and uh, remarkable truths uh, that I hope we will not ever contemn or neglect or uh, grow weary of. So he begins, as he often does, not always, but often, by introducing himself. And this was the typical way in a Greek letter of the time of the Roman Empire uh, to introduce the, the person who's writing it first and then describe those who were receiving it. So first the author, then the, the recipients, and then some sort of a greeting, and that's the, the structure we have here. And Paul, and he doesn't include anyone else here. Often in his other letters, he includes others who were with him. But here he simply says, Paul, an apostle, an apostle. Now, what's an apostle? Uh, it comes from the word to send. And so an apostle is a sent one. It is an emissary. It is an envoy. It is someone who's sent with authority for some task or other. And in Luke chapter 6, verse 13, we find Jesus designating 12 
to be his disciples. And Luke tells us that he also called them apostles. And so the 12, Jesus made them apostles in a, in a very narrow sense. Then he did what? He sent them out. And those 12 were called apostles and no others were called apostles in that sense at the time. They were with Jesus during his entire ministry and they were witnesses of the resurrection and the ascension. So when one of them went missing, Judas, who became the betrayer, and they were at the beginning of Acts trying to find one who would take his place, they said, who has been with us from the very beginning and who can share with us being a witness of the resurrection and of the ascension. And they put a couple there, and they one was chosen to be the twelfth and to fill out the twelve. And Now, it, Paul describes apostle, he says, of Christ Jesus. Now, that of Christ Jesus means, of course, that they uh, the apostles belong to Christ Jesus, but it's more than that. It's authority. They are they are the mouthpieces of Christ Jesus. Those were the ones that were sent in an authoritative way to announce the good news of Christ Jesus. And as such, they had unique authority from Christ Jesus to function in a way that was foundational and never to be repeated. In other words, there are no more apostles of this type, of these original apostles. Why not? The foundation has already been laid. The foundation of the church does not need to be relaid. Later on in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul will actually say this, that, that Christ is the chief cornerstone, and he, he founded his church on the apostles and the prophets. You don't need to relay a foundation. And so we don't need foundational, unique apostles anymore. Their time has passed. They did what Christ called them to do. However, at the same time, if you're reading through the New Testament, you will find some others that were not part of the twelve who are called apostles. Um, Barnabas, James, Apollos, Epaphroditus, and maybe some others were called apostles. In what sense were they apostles? Well, in a more general sense, they were what? Sent ones. Now, what do we call sent ones these days? Missionaries, right? So when you come to these, these others who were called apostles, they were, in our terms, they were missionaries. They were sent ones. Now, there are churches today that, that say that they have apostles. But if we think about it, it's interesting that, that they're not apostles in the two biblical senses of the word. They're not apostles in being foundational for the church because the foundation's already been laid. We don't have or need any more of those. And they're usually, at least as, as I've seen that word used in, in churches, they're not, they're not apostles in the other sense of being, found, uh, of being missionaries. They're not sent out. Rather, they are ones who are often have extraordinary ministries in a certain place and exercise authority in a certain place but they're, they're not apostles in the sense of being sent out. They're staying home and ministering where they are. And so, so really, I haven't seen this word be, be appropriately used these days, but it would be appropriately used if we refer to apostles that are going out to the ends of the earth to reach new people with the gospel. Now, what about Paul? I've said there were the twelve, and then I've said there were the general ones, but what about Paul? Because Paul is here claiming an apostle of Jesus 
Christ. And he's not claiming that in a general sense of a sent one. He is ranking himself among the twelve. And, and he was very, all through his, his, his ministry and his writings, he is very self-consciously a, an apostle of the rank of those original twelve. Now, how can we account for this? Well, he, he was always aware of this authority, and he recognized that he had some of, some of the qualifications for an apostle. For example, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1, he says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And are not my work, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? So what's he saying there? So an apostle is one who has seen the risen Lord. He didn't see him at the same time as the others, but he saw him later on the road to Damascus. And he says, are you, you the Corinthians, the church in Corinth, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? In other words, I'm laying the foundation along with the other apostles. You are evidence. You Corinthians are evidence that I am one of these foundational apostles because I am laying the foundation of Jesus Christ on which the church will be built. Now, this is an, an exceptional case. This is an unusual. This is, this is out of the ordinary. And no one, no one was more surprised to find Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ, than Paul. He never got over of the exceptional nature of his case. And I'm guessing that, that what is familiar to us, whenever he penned it, probably never ceased to shock Paul when he wrote, Paul, an apostle? Paul, an apostle? How is that possible? How did that come about? He never got over the marvel that God would, in an extraordinary way, call him to be an apostle. Look what he says here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He, he wasn't there with the apostolic band during the, uh, Jesus' ministry, but by the will of God. God called him in an extraordinary, dramatic way to be an apostle. And, and listen to how he he, he thought about his apostleship in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. He, he reminds them of the gospel. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. He recognized that he was the last of a series. Do you see that? He said, I'm the last one, last of all, as to one untimely born, the most, the most, 
the most, the least likely candidate, the most unlikely candidate, he appeared to me and he called me by his will to be an apostle. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And then he says, to whom he's writing the letter. It is to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. That's how our translation has it. He called his readers saints or holy ones. That's what it is. It's a holy one. Now, when we hear that word saints because of all of church history, we tend to think of a few individuals with extraordinary character that God used in in extraordinary ways, and they have been canonized or sanctified. They have been declared to be saints because they're they're super holy. They've been outstanding in their in their dedication to the Lord. But actually, the New Testament doesn't really use the word very frequently that way as someone of exceptional holiness. Rather, it's applied very generally to Christians. This is a very common word for Christians. And we know, to our shame, that not all Christians are distinguished by exceptional holiness and godliness in their lives. So so what can this mean? Well, the, the basic idea in the New Testament is this, is a holy one, a saint is a separated one. It is one who has been called out. It has been, is one who has been separated by God for service to God. So that is, not a, that is not a description of the person's character. That is the description of the benefit that God has given to that person. To say, I am a saint is not to boast. It is to say glory to God, that God has separated me out from humanity and made me his own and made me for his purpose. So today it might say, I'm a saint. That may sound like a boast, but it's actually a gratitude. It is saying, thanks be to God. And what should come out of that? If we are called saints, if we have been separated, then the godly living should follow from that. You see, saintly living is the result of being a saint. It's not the other way around. See, in church history, you've gotten it the other way around. If somebody lives in a saintly way, we declare them to be a saint. But but in the scripture, it's no. When somebody is called out to be a saint, then the work of sanctification begins. Then the work of godly living begins. And that's the ethic of the New Testament. The ethic of the New Testament is not the frustrating ethic of, hey, try to be holy, folks. No, the ethic of the New Testament is this. God has made you holy. That is separated. He has drawn you out. And so live out what you are in Jesus Christ. Live out that calling that he has given to you. We do not become saints by being holy, but become holy by being saints. So to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now we get to, now we get to one of the biggest questions about this letter. And it has to do with two words here. In Ephesus. And you may have a footnote in your, in your Bible that says something about, um, that in Ephesus doesn't appear in some of the oldest manuscripts. Now, when we talk about manuscripts, the New Testament is in a class by itself. There's nothing even close in all 
of antiquity. There is no document in all of antiquity that is better attested than the New Testament. And so when you hear somebody say, well, we really don't know what the New Testament says. We really don't know what was written. Oh, yes, we do. Oh, yes, we do. We may not know what Homer wrote. We may not know what Plato wrote. We may not know what Aristotle wrote, but we know what Paul wrote. There's no other book like this. At the same time, among these thousands, thousands of manuscripts, there are some slight variations, slight variations that do not affect the truth in the least. A lot of them are things like this. Should it say Jesus Christ or should it say Christ Jesus? So when it was copied, one one scribe wrote down Christ Jesus and the other scribe wrote down Jesus Christ. A lot of times it's like that. Should there be an amen here or not an amen? So don't get alarmed by this idea. But here there's a very interesting thing. The oldest manuscripts do not have in Ephesus. In Ephesus. It, it, it doesn't say that. It says to the saints who are and are faithful in Christ Jesus. No, in Ephesus. And also, when we read this letter, we say, now wait a minute, in Acts, it says that Paul lived in Ephesus for almost three years. And it was his base of operations for almost three years. And you read this letter, and it's very general. He doesn't send greetings to anybody in particular. He doesn't list all of his friends there. He doesn't address any any local situation. Do you remember Philippians? Where he names, he calls two women out for fighting? You don't find anything like that in Ephesians. It seems so impersonal and general. And so some people say, well, it was a general letter. It wasn't to Ephesus, to the Ephesians. It was to Christians in general. But at the same time, there's a problem. If you take out in Ephesus, it, it doesn't read right. And the grammar in Greek and in English almost requires that a place be there. Listen to this. And this is just how it is in Greek, too. Listen, how does this sound in English? To the saints who are and are faithful in Christ Jesus. There's something missing, isn't there? And so uh, it calls out for a place name. And this letter has always been, always been associated with Ephesus except in uh, one or two exceptions. So, so I think we can conclude that, yes, this was written to the Ephesians, but, but think about it this way, and this may explain why it's general and not specific and personal. When we read in Acts that Paul was in Ephesus for almost three years, he made Ephesus the base of operations for the evangelization of the whole province. And so, as he's writing to the Ephesians, he could be writing to the whole province. And if he if he sent greetings to Bill and Sally and John and, and Samantha, the people in the, the other cities around Ephesus would say, what, what's this about Bill and John and Sally and Samantha? Somebody just wrote me and said, hey, I want to I want to visit your church. They wrote me on Facebook. I want to visit your church when I'm in the area. And they said, how far are you from Fort Pierce? No, Fort Myers. I said, well, we're kind of far from Fort Myers. <laughs> so I don't think they know geography very well. And they said, they also said, oh, send greetings to Billy. And I, I wrote back, I said, who's Billy? <laughs> so I was rather confused. I think they're confused about our church, where it is and where Billy is, right? And, and, and so if they had sent this letter and with lots of specifics to a number of other churches, they would have said, like I did, who's Billy? Right. And what does that have to do with us? Now, the advantage for us, the advantage for us 
in the fact that that this letter is so general is that it applies to us. It was obviously written for Christians, saints, not just in Ephesus in the first century. It was written for Christians of all ages, and we will see that. Sometimes in Philippians, we couldn't really enter in. In Corinthians, even less so. We don't even know what's going on sometimes in Corinthians. What is Paul talking about? And they're not our issues. Food sacrifice to idols, that's not a, a daily issue for us. But Ephesians, we're going to find that, that we can easily put our name in here to the saints who are in Pompano Beach. And, and if you put that in here, you will find that it applies to you. This general letter becomes very specific because it applies to all Christians. Now, the saints are described also as faithful. And now it reads well if you leave in, in Ephesus, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Once again, that word faithful um, can be either faithful or can believers. And uh, we think of faithfulness as sort of a personal quality. But what is faithfulness? Faithfulness is, is believing. It's having faith. And so I think it, it would be fine to translate this and maybe even more to the point, who are believers in Christ Jesus? The saints in Ephesus, what are they? Well, saints are what? Saints are believers in Christ Jesus. And the faith has a specific object. The, the faith that, that is true faith has a specific object. It's Christ Jesus. Um, these days, spirituality is very popular. Very popular. And, and I hear people of lots of different backgrounds tell me their creed, basically, and they say, I'm, you can finish it for me, you've heard it too, I'm spiritual, but not, exactly. And so it's like a, a, an anti-creed creed. I want to be spiritual because I don't want to just be atoms in the void. I don't want to have a meaningless existence, but I don't want to believe anything concretely. But here, this is concrete, inescapably so. It's not faith in general. It is faith in Christ Jesus. And what is faith in Christ Jesus? It is trusting in Christ as he has offered to us in the gospel. And what is the gospel? We just read it. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's what faith is. It is believing in him who did that. Who died for our sins according to the scriptures. Whom God raised from the dead to conquer over sin and death. That is what a saint is. That is what a believer in Christ Jesus is. Now, we get to, that's just, the, that's verse 1. Now, verse 2 is the, is the blessing, the greeting. And here, this is, this is standard Paul. Um, eight times just like this, and other times shortened or lengthened. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And in spite of being so short and so common, we shouldn't miss its depth and breadth. He has grace and peace. Grace and peace. And you can see grace as summing up God's position, his posture towards those who are in Christ Jesus. It is favorable. Grace is favor. When you read grace, think favor. But don't just think favor, think favor towards sinners. Grace doesn't enter in until sin enters in. So grace is favor of God towards sinners who are in Christ Jesus. And peace, this was part of the... Uh, and is to this day the Jewish greeting, right? How do they? How do Jews greet greet each other? Shalom. shalom, exactly. And so peace sums up shalom. And what is shalom? It's well-being. It's wholeness. In when, it's when everything is in order. It's when everything is in order. And so think about this: with just two words, 
grace and peace, Paul summed up the Bible. If you look at the Old Testament, there's a great emphasis on peace, shalom. You look at the New Testament, grace and truth are revealed in the New Testament through Jesus Christ. So we have the, we have the whole Bible summed up here. But interestingly, if you go at it historically, and if the Old Testament emphasizes peace, and the New Testament emphasizes grace, how would the greeting go? You would say, peace and grace to you, to get it in historical order. But he doesn't do that, does he? He reverses that, and he says what? Grace and peace. And there's a reason for that. Because grace is the source of peace. That's the problem in the Old Testament. It's incomplete because it emphasizes peace, peace, shalom. It's always looking for shalom, but you read the New Testament, and guess what you don't find much of? You don't find much shalom. You don't find much peace in the Old Testament. And it's this search through all the Old Testament. How are we going to achieve this shalom that God wants us to have? And in the pages of the New Testament, not not exclusively, it's, it's hinted at, it's prepared for, it's there throughout the Old Testament pointing forward to, but it explodes onto the scene in Jesus Christ, the grace of God. That's where we see the grace of God, His favor towards sinners that God so loved the world. Yes, that sinful, rebellious world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. You see, it, it's a fundamental religious problem when we try to seek favor through well-being. You see, we need to seek well-being through God's favor, the grace that He has shown us in Jesus Christ. You see, many, many religions, that's how they do it. They, they say, well, try to make things work. Try to be whole. Try to, try to make things fit together right, and then God will be favorable towards you. But no, it's, it's the other way around. God has initiated His favor towards you not because of anything in you, but on the contrary, because uh, in spite of your sin, that's His grace. And that, that grace is how you get to that wholeness. You start with His favor and you get to the peace. You get to the shalom. You get to His wholeness. Grace to you. And where are we going to get this grace? Where are we going to get this peace? He says, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and once again, these roll off our tongues easily. We're familiar with these expressions, but they are striking in a number of ways. The expression God our Father is really truly amazing. One scholar has found 15 references to God as our Father in the Old Testament. 15. That same scholar has found more than 260 references to God our Father in the New Testament. That's the, that's the amazing revelation in the New Testament. God sends His Son. God did not change, by the way. It's not... It's not that what God wasn't father in the Old Testament and now he's father. No, but the son burst onto the scene. So the son came and revealed who the father is. And then he gave us the same privilege that he has. Do you remember when the disciples went to Jesus and said, Master, teach us to pray as, our, as John the Baptist teaches his disciples to pray. And what were the first words that he taught us to pray? Our father. Shocking. That, that we could call God our Father. And how do we know that? Because the Son has come and the Son has revealed to us what the Father's like and given us that same access that He Himself has through adoption. And then we have the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also familiar but remarkable. Think about that. Lord, 
Jesus Christ. Two of those are titles, and one of those is a, is a personal name. Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. A human. The, the son of Mary. But before that human name, we have Lord, which refers to the fact that he is God, and Christ, that he is the anointed one. He is the chosen one of God. So this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the sovereign ruler and the anointed king. And another thing about this expression, Paul, with all naturalness, without being conscious of being innovative in any way, he puts God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ on the same level as the joint source of grace and peace. People sometimes ask, well, well you know, I, I don't believe in the Trinity. They say, you know, where does the Bible teach the Trinity? I'm like, where is, does it not teach the Trinity? Okay, it doesn't use the word, but, but constantly with all naturalness, without any consciousness of being, being creative or making anything up, God the Father and the Lord Jesus, and then later we will see the Holy Spirit are put on the same level, one God in three persons. He is on par with the Father as the joint source of grace and peace. So, my friends, to you who are saints, to you who are believers in Jesus Christ, here at this point in Pompano Beach, I wish you grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that that blessing will never become familiar to you, so familiar that it ever ceases to be remarkable. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for the treasures that we find so succinctly summarized here in this, this these opening words. Calling us who are believers in Christ, saints, your separated out ones. Giving us your favor in Jesus and establishing wholeness and fullness and well-being between us and you and among us. Peace, shalom. Lord, we, we begin this letter with gratitude for the grace that is revealed in Jesus and the peace that results. And we accept them once again through faith, through believing in Jesus Christ and receiving from God the Father, from the Lord Jesus Christ, and from the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, these blessings that you have for us. And may we go out from this place to live as saints, live as those who have been called out to be your holy people, and to show by the way we live our lives this amazing, amazing miracle that you have wrought in us of your grace and your peace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.